0: Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli.
1: Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Do you take asset protection seriously? The importance of protecting your assets as an investor is completely unparalleled. If you're looking for ways to ensure the success of your real estate business, you have the following tools and options available to you. And there's really four. The first is debt. This strategy basically works like this. If you continue to pull the equity out of your existing properties and reinvest that money into new properties, you're building your portfolio, but you're also continually avoiding the excess liquid capital that sits around in your properties. And this is a form of protecting yourself because you are not showing that you have equity or wealth. This is otherwise known as equity stripping. And most people will follow through with this strategy by either refinancing their properties to pull that equity out or using a home equity line of credit, also known as a HELOC. The second tool and option you have available to you are LLCs or limited liability companies, widely available in every state in the United States the benefits of setting up an LLC are almost unparalleled. They're they're next to none. See, no one will be able to see the assets that are hidden behind an LLC. And that's the beautiful thing about having a limited liability company, because for one, an LLC will limit your personal vulnerability. And when your investment properties are owned by an LLC, your risk exposure would be insulated by the protection of that company or that entity leaving only the assets owned by the LLC as opposed to all of your own personal assets exposed to potential lawsuits. The third tool is insurance. And this is what most people think about first and foremost. And unfortunately, sometimes they stop thinking about it at that point. But insurance is the easiest way to ensure your real estate assets are protected. And that's just simply purchase insurance. It is, of course, important to have insurance in place for your primary residence, but it's just as equally important, if not more important to consider insurance for your rental properties. And I mean all of them. And then last but not least, you have trusts. And this is an area that I think a lot of people get a little confused or there's misunderstandings or misinformation about trusts and what they are and how they work. And we're going to talk about that later today with my guest, But if your real estate business continues to grow, there's a chance you may end up needing to one-up your real estate asset protection. The debt strategy and insurance can only go so far, but eventually you'll need to consider expanding into trusts, other entities, and other structures. But a combination of these tools together may be the best option for advanced real estate investors. Using the right tools just mitigates your liability. And for a legal opponent planning to pursue and sue you and go after your assets, what you've done is you've placed multiple roadblocks by using two or more of these tools. You have hidden, protected, and or stripped the properties of their value. And in the end, there is little to nothing for a predator, a legal predator, to go after And in the process, you'll have also created an estate plan, not just for yourself, but your loved ones, your family, and your heirs. So let's talk about that today with my great guest. His name is Clint Coons. I've had him on years ago, and it's time to have him back. We'll be right back after this quick message. It's my pleasure to welcome Clint Coons to the show. Clint is the founding partner at Anderson Business Advisors. And Clint, I've known for many, many years. He's a good friend of mine. He is a real estate asset protection expert, and he's an avid real estate investor. In fact, I love to see professionals like attorneys and CPAs that are actual investors in what we talk about all the time. So he wants to help every investor create a well-balanced plan so that they can continue to grow their portfolio and they have the capital and investments protected. So with that, Clint, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. It's been a long time. I think we're long overdue to bring you back on and talk about some things that are related to asset protection and maybe a little bit of tax strategy stuff and answer some questions that investors frequently ask us and sometimes they get misinformation out there from all those so-called gurus and I really don't like when that happens because then we have to kind of break that false understanding or belief that they have in order to put them back on the right track and then we connect them with guys like you. So, why don't we start off with some of the basics here, Clint? For those people who really are not completely polished on the whole idea of asset protection and why you even need it, let's start with that. What is asset protection? Why do we need it? All right. So, when you talk to a
0: lot of people or even attorneys, they'll just tell individual investors, just purchase insurance, right? That's all you need to do. You don't need to get complicated with your life. You don't need to create structures because it's just going to make things more difficult for you. Well, The reason why real estate investors need asset protection is because it's not if you're going to be sued, it's when you're going to be sued. And what most people don't realize that, and when I say the people that tell everyone to buy insurance as their forms of asset protection, is that a lot of the cases or a lot of the reasons you're going to be sued have nothing to do with insurance. You're not going to be covered under the policy. And it's something that being in the space for over 20 years and, and being an avid real estate investor myself, I see this and when i talk to people that have found themselves in this situation they say oh yeah my insurance company didn't cover me because there's a, a no dog bite exclusion in my policy and my tenant had a dog and it bit somebody who was in their backyard trespassing and so now they're being sued over this think like that people just don't appreciate and so asset protection is about ensuring that if something like that does occur in your life with your investments you're not betting the farm i mean i would not want to risk my entire portfolio on my insurer stepping up and making sure that the person that's suing me is going to be adequately compensated and the attorney is going to get everything they want out of the deal. So I want to take it to control that myself and put firewalls up between all of my assets. So if something does go wrong or when it does go wrong with one of those assets, that's the only thing I'm risking. And the rest of my portfolio is not in jeopardy.
1: So you're talking about a worst case scenario here. It's like when it actually happens and then how does that unfold or how are you protected? But I think a lot of people choose to set up an asset protection plan, not just for the protection of if and when it happens, but to discourage lawsuits. So how does that work as far as a lawsuit discouragement? Yeah. So one of the things that we teach is that set up your structure so that people don't even know you have it. It
0: is a saying that we've adopted. You can't see what you can't see. And so the one way is to discourage lawsuits is to hold your structures or hold your real estate in a form that it does not tie back to you. So you don't become an attractive target. Because at the end of the day, any attorney that is looking to take on a client and they're seeking recovery against a property owner, I mean, they want to get paid. They're not doing this stuff for free. And if it doesn't appear that you have a lot of assets in your name, then it decreases the likelihood that I'm going to aggressively pursue this. And I'll give you an example. So I had this client in LA. Bad situation. Somebody, two patrons left the nightclub. One of them lost two legs. The other one lost one leg when a drunk driver hit these two guys and pinned them up against a nightclub. So three attorneys jump in, right, to represent two clients. And am talk about the epitome of greed here, right? How much can we get from these individuals? They came after my client, who was a nightclub owner, and they ended up settling for his policy limits. And again, going back to the insurance angle here. The insurance company wasn't going to defend him, and they, they held back a reservation of claim against him because he didn't have the valet company name his insurer as additional insured under their policy because there's some little quirky clause in his policy that if they had a valet company, they had to be named as additional insured. So he was you know, on pins and needles there. But eventually, the insurance company did do the right thing, and they ended up settling for the policy limits, but the building owner... He tried to settle for policy limits. And of course, the building owner is the least culpable person here. All he did was own a building. You can't say that the building contributed to these guys getting pinned up against it. That guy ended up having to pay policy limits plus a lot more. And what was interesting here is the building owner was my client's father. And he couldn't understand. He said, why do I have to pay more than my policy limits? And the opposing counsel said, listen, we did an asset search. Your son doesn't have anything. You do. And so we know you can afford to pay. And what was so astonishing about that claim is that the son is actually worth more than the father, but they couldn't discover the assets because of the way they were held. And so that's why you do it in this manner, set it up in this manner.
1: Yeah, interesting. So is that the same as, I mean, I want to say privacy, but it's really hiding your assets from public view. I mean, you still control them. You don't technically own them. They're held by entities that you control or, or own, but through the use of entities, you control your assets but you don't show that you own anything so you're effectively hiding it from the world right
0: correct i mean you're not hiding it from the irs you're not hiding it from banks you're not hiding it from attorneys and cpas it's just i don't need somebody to jump online and figure out what's going on with my business that is my business not the world's business to discover
1: so proper asset protection planning is not about doing anything wrong or illegal or crooked it's really just making use of existing tax and legal laws to protect you and your assets from people who are trying to sue you or throw a frivolous lawsuit at you or anything like that. It's really just protection. That's all it is. And on top
0: of that, you know, this privacy angle, I'm I'm pretty passionate about it because in my own business, I've been through situations where in this day and age, it's not about suing somebody and having a valid claim against them. It's about assassination of character, and shakedown. And what better way to do that than over the internet? Hide behind aliases, dox people, send information out to their employers. This person is a horrible landlord. They do this, this, and this. And you can't trace it back to that person that's coming after you because they're using alias accounts. And people wonder, why am I in this situation? And it comes down to, well, your name's all over everything. They know who you are. So it's, you actually set yourself up for this type of attack. And unfortunately, unless you have the resources to fight that, I mean, we, we just went through a lawsuit like that with an ex-employee who tried to do tremendous damage to our firm, where she would send out messages to everyone on our Facebook page that Anderson's been raided by the FBI or the IRS has shut us down. And we sued her. and We got a $90 million judgment against her and ended up putting her in jail. But it took me $200,000 to fight that. I don't think the average real estate investor has $200,000 that they want to spend defending themselves in that type of action. So that is why privacy is so important
1: in this day and age. Clint, years ago, I went to the seminar and it was put on, they had different speakers. It was one of those circuits where, you know, you have a platform, a keynote, and then you have a bunch of presenters and everybody is educating you, but then selling something very expensive at the back of the room, right? So there was these two guys on stage and I believe one of them was an attorney. Maybe they were both attorneys. But they made asset protection so bloody complicated. They had these charts up on PowerPoints with boxes under boxes under boxes with everything circled with a larger box and rings and arrows going all over the place. And then they had this package presented at the end where for X number of thousands of dollars, you get X number of LLCs and this and that and that. And it was just ridiculous. Now, Granted, I'll be honest, I didn't know about as much about asset protection back then as I do today, because I've spent years studying it a little bit here and a little bit there. And now I have a, a pretty good understanding of it. But holy man, they really complicated it. So why are these promoters complicating asset protection when it doesn't have to be that complicated?
0: Well, I think it's because they feel that they need to hide the ball. Okay. So then you have to use them. They're afraid to give you the education. You know, it comes back to my grandfather, he was an attorney for 50 years and two years out of law school. So I've already sworn in as an attorney and I started practice with my partner, Toby. And we took this approach is that we're not hiding anything. We're gonna educate everyone on how to set this stuff up. I mean, you see my YouTube channel. I mean, I give away all of the secret sauce so people can do it on their own. And it was with this thought in mind that if I made it so that you could understand it and it wasn't so complicated and I tried to hide stuff, then you'll actually engage with me because there's transparency there. And more importantly, you understand what it is we're doing. So it becomes more of a collaborative effort. Well, my grandfather saw what I was doing. He said, you're never going to make it as an attorney because you do not hide the ball. He said, you're basically teaching your clients how to do everything that you could do for them. Why would they ever use you? And, you know, I looked at him. I said, that's our business model is that we don't want clients who don't understand it. And that they're going to become solely dependent upon us because then they probably won't utilize it going forwards or they'll screw it up somehow, some way. And it won't protect them the way it was designed to. And so it's a difference of philosophy on how to go about it. I mean, we've been extremely well building our business through the education model, making sure our clients understand it all. And if they want to do it on their own, great, do it. If you understand that you
1: don't have time, it's low value work, you should be invested in real estate, then we're there to help you. I love that model. And that's really the approach we take, too. We just want to show you everything, show you how the sausage is made. But at the end of the day, you don't want to be a sausage maker. I just want to buy the sausage, right? (laughs) But that's a great model. So I talk about treating your real estate investing as a business, and I've heard you say that you should treat your real estate asset protection structure as a business or something to that effect. Maybe I'm butchering your words, but can you explain that because a lot of people still think as real estate investing as a hobby or something that is just a very part-time endeavor and you shouldn't take all that seriously, but really at the end of the day it's a very powerful tool and you should take it seriously. So what happens here and the reason people fall into this
0: trap is that you're getting your information from either an attorney or CPA. And Attorney, I see, even though I'm an attorney, I'm, I'm not the traditional type of attorney that, you know, I'm a real estate investor. I have over 120 properties across seven different states. So I look at things a lot different than a standard attorney. Attorney that's focused on asset protection, they're going to see every problem as a nail and they're the hammer. They're going to pound it in. So everything's a nail out there in the world. And a <laughs> CPA is going to focus just on taxation. All we got to do is reduce your taxes, reduce your taxes. And that's all you should focus on. So they're a screwdriver and everything out there is a screw that they're going to take care of. I don't want to diminish that because, you know, at Anderson, we do both. We do taxes, we do asset protection, we have CPAs and attorneys that work hand in hand. But the overarching plan and what we focus on is what I look at as the third leg of this stool. So you have asset protection, tax planning, and business planning. Because real estate investors need to appreciate that what they're doing should be looked at as a business. Because if you treat it as a business and you put the systems in place and you put the proper structures in place, it's going to help you succeed in acquiring real estate. So many people wonder, why am I failing? I'm not getting the success I thought I would have at this point in time. Well, many times it's they're chasing the shiny objects and they're not just focusing on their investing, but it's also they don't have the proper systems in place. And so you take an entity, for example... So many real estate investors will go to their CPA and they'll say, well, if you're going to flip or you're going to manage, you should set it up as an S-corp. My response is never use an S-corp, always use a C-corp. And they push back on me. They go, why would I do that? And I said, because if you want to borrow money and you're going to work with lenders, they're going to ask for copies of your tax return. And if you want to be toxic to lenders, so they'll never want to work with you, run it through an S-corp. Let them know you flip real estate. You're a real estate investor. And you're basically taking yourself out of the conventional lending market. You're going to be in the mid-market working with private money lenders or hard money lenders. And you're never going to know why other than the fact that you're saving a few thousand dollars in taxes and that nobody wants to work with you. Well, it's because of how your tax returns look. And so I tell people, you know, I'll walk into a room and say, how many people here want to reduce your taxes down to zero? And 90% of the people raise their hand. I say, great. None of you will ever be able to borrow money. I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Well, lenders aren't going to loan to people who make no money, come on. You need to show income in order to get a loan. So you got to balance this out. And that's what I'm talking about, the business planning side. What are your goals? How are we going to set up a structure that's going to help you achieve those goals rather than prevent you from achieving them?
1: Got it, okay. All right, so back to the asset protection. So you're setting up your asset protection plan or you're working with Clint Coons or you're working with an asset protection attorney you're building out the plan, you're following their advice. But how does an investor know? How do you know when you're actually properly protected? Is there a litmus test or a rule of thumb? Is there something in the industry that says, yeah, I've got my plan in place and I'm properly protected?
0: I wouldn't say there's a litmus test. This is the horrible thing about what I do from my standpoint. I mean, every once in a while, I want my clients to be sued because then it gives me great stories to tell people, (laughs) listen, if you do it this way, it works, you know? And we've had clients that have been sued. I mean, I just shared with you a story like that. The key thing that you need to focus on is that when you're creating your structures, that you're setting them up the right way with the proper documentation in the right jurisdiction for the type of investing that you're engaging in, and that they're set up to protect your assets, you're making a tax election that's gonna be efficient for you, but still at the same time is going to help you on the financing side of building the business. And so you have to look at multiple facets here. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Although people, everyone wants to think that, oh, all they need is an LLC. Well, you know, I can't say that until I look at your individualized situation.
1: So here's a related question to that. I've heard from different people, If you're holding properties in an LLC, you should limit the number of properties based on the amount of equity that you're comfortable holding within that LLC. So it's not so much the number of properties, it's really the amount of equity that you're willing to put on the line or risk, quote unquote. Do you subscribe to that model? Is that how you normally measure it? How how do you do it?
0: One property per LLC, unless I'm working with an institutional lender, because it's a package deal and I'm forced to carry all the real estate inside of one limited liability company. And it just comes down to numbers. Okay. So people that look at equity, they don't understand real estate investing. I'm buying property, not for the equity, I'm buying it for the cash flow. So if I had 10 properties in one limited liability company that generates for me $5,500 a month, but it only has a total of about $350,000 equity, what's more important to me? Well, it's that cash flow that I'm living on that's supporting me, that's paying for my child's education. The last thing I want to do is risk that cash flow because of one lawsuit that wipes out all of those properties. And sometimes people say, well, Clint, you're just fear-mongering when you say stuff like this, that it, it could, it's not going to happen. It may not happen. I hope you never get sued. But if it does, every one of my clients that have been in that situation never came back to me and said, man, Clint, I really regret you telling me to set up one property per LLC because it just saved my butt. But those that don't follow that advice, I mean, I just had one in my office last year with three properties in one LLC, and he's freaking out because he's going to lose everything. I just, you know, what do I say to him? I said, I told you the way to do it. You didn't follow my advice. And this is what happens. And so I don't want to see people in there. Setting up LLCs, it's not expensive. It can be very inexpensive. I call it an inexpensive form of insurance to keep your portfolio growing.
1: So I totally agree with you, but I know what some listeners are thinking right now. They're thinking, okay, if I have a portfolio of whatever, 10, 20, 50 properties or 120 like you, and I have each one in an LLC, so I've got the annual state fee, right? A resident agent fee, and then I'm not sure what else. Maybe you have to file a form every year, which you could do on your own, or you could just hire someone to do it very inexpensively. So I mean, they're probably asking, what's going to cost me per year per LLC, just to get a ballpark idea of the carry cost on that. And I agree with you. It is insurance. 200 bucks.
0: Okay. Average is going to be about $200. Some states are going to be more expensive. So let's say it was in California and you had California LLCs. I know, I know. (laughs) So now in California, you're at $1,000 a year. And I run into this all the time with people. Well, it's $1,000 a year. I said, yeah, but your property's worth $700,000. So when you do the math, the amount of protection you're obtaining for $1,000 to protect a $700,000 property or a property that produces for you $6,000 a month rental income. Are you crazy? I mean, that's $72,000 a year in rental income. You're spending 1000 just to protect it. I don't know what that number is, what that amounts to, about 1.5%. I think it's well worth it. Many times people don't look at it that way, and then they find themselves in that situation where a lot's been put at risk.
1: Yeah, it's a matter of perspective, and you're right. It's all relative, but that is a cheap form of protection, and you can look at it as an additional layer of insurance. So it makes sense, right? This is something that actually came up in our team meeting this morning with my investment counselors, and someone was asking about land trusts. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about what they are and how to use them, but I think the question was, what is a land trust for starters, but why should an investor even know about this entity and use a land trust. I mean technically it's not an entity, but why should an investor even use a land trust?
0: Well, it's just like everything. You know, if you're going to go out and you're going to construct a house, you have a whole bunch of tools that you're going to use in the building that house. And you may not necessarily use all of them in the framing process. And you're going to use some in when you're doing the drywall. It wouldn't be used by the framing. So think of it that way. Land trust is just another tool and you're going to use it in the appropriate circumstance. And so many times clients will use it if they have a property that's in their name and they wanna put it into an LLC and they realize that a direct transfer will trigger a transfer tax in that state, fine. We can get it in there typically using the land trust. Put it into land trust first, then assign the land trust over to the LLC. So you get the protection of the LLC and you avoid the state transfer fee on top of it. If you buy property and you don't want your name to be on title, let's say you're gonna go down and you're gonna buy properties at auction. So I have a lot of clients who do this. I don't want my name being on title, ever hitting title. So when I'm at auction, I'm buying all my properties in land trusts. So I'm just giving them these names because I can create a land trust right then and there at the auction. Just sign, put a name on a piece of paper, sign it, boom, trust the name, you can take title in it. So it works really well for that type of investing. If you want anonymity for existing properties, you can set them up that way as well. Get the property out of your name by transferring into a trust with a nominee trustee, or you set up an LLC that's going to be your trustee. So there's a lot of different uses, and it really depends on the circumstance when we'll set it up for an individual or make that recommendation that they use it. But you need to know about it because a lot of people who do not know about this tool, and then as professionals, they'll tell their clients, you can't do that. If you move it into there, it's going to create this problem for you. Not realizing there is a way to accomplish it if you just understood every tool that you have.
1: And I think that needs to be stated and you can obviously verify this but a land trust should not be looked at as an asset protection vehicle in any way shape or form it is really there for anonymity not for asset protection it's used in conjunction with llcs or whatever else you might be using right correct it's just a title holding entity the only state that offers asset protection
0: for a land trust is florida and that's only from the inside if something happens with the tenant then you have protection. But if you get sued personally, they can take your trust from you. And unfortunately, I've heard people at RIA groups tell individuals, oh, all you need to do is set up a land trust and you have all this protection. You don't. And whenever I'll challenge them on it, they'll say, oh, yeah, it stands up in court and they can't pierce it. I'll say, well, great. Give me the cause number and I'll look it up. I've yet to get a cause number from anyone that told me that a land trust will protect them and they saw the case in court or they were part of it. So just, it, it doesn't work that way. It's a tool. It has its use, but it's not going to provide what many people portray it to provide.
1: So just kind of a question as far as a warning to people, you've got services out there like prepaid legal, you've got self-serve websites like LegalZoom, and I know it's the bane of most attorneys existence, (laughs) but you know, a lot of investors think that they can go there and download the templates and fill in the blanks. And probably to some degree that works, but what's the difference with actually working with a real live human being, an attorney that does this day in and day out versus doing it the self-serve way through these self-serve websites?
0: Because you don't know what you don't know. And that's never going to be brought to your attention until you're involved in a lawsuit. I mean, everything's going to work as long as you're not in an audit or you're not being sued. But then when the documents get tested, that's when you find out where the weaknesses lie within your agreement. So you can use untested documents to create your structure, or you can use tested documents that have been through lawsuits that have withstood creditor attack. And you know that they're being drafted with that type of investing that you're engaging in in mind. I mean, as I stated earlier, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. When it comes to creating limited liability companies, there's a lot of different operating agreements that we use depending on the types of investment activity that the individual is, is engaging in. And so we want to make sure not only are they getting the proper protections, but we're also making the proper tax elections in that document as well, so that the IRS isn't going to come after it. Or if a lender looks at the document, because many times lenders are going to want to see your operating agreements, that it's not going to throw them off as well. So there's a lot that goes into the drafting that is not really typically obvious to the novice
1: investor who goes to the legal zoom to put that together. Would you say the operating agreement is, I shouldn't say more important, but really more important than, than the entity type or the state, because it really all comes down to the court or the judge or whoever looking at that operating agreement, what's written in there and what's not written in there? Does it really come down to that? It does, because here's what the attorney is going to want to do, because you have to understand that judges
0: typically do not have a specialty in business disputes or LLC operating agreements, with the exception of Nevada, Wyoming, and Delaware that have business courts that are designed to adjudicate just those types of transactions. So if you have a dispute with someone, say you live in Texas, and you have this operating agreement that you set up on LegalZoom, and you're using it, and I'm coming after you, I'm going to pick it apart. And I'm going to use these small components that are not favorable to you to bludgeon you over the head in front of the judge, assassinate your character, mm-hmm. and say, look at the mess. You know He's doing this, this, and this, and his operating agreement doesn't provide for that. It violates this statute here. It runs contrary to that. We should disregard the form and you're going to sit there, you know, with your mouth open like a fish that just got tossed out of the pond and you're trying to suck oxygen and you can't get any because you don't know what to do. You can't go back in and redraft the operating rate at that point in time. The horse has left the barn.
1: Right. Okay. Good point. All right. Just in wrapping it up, this is an actual client case that we're dealing with right now. We have a particular investor who firmly believes that they need to have the property that they're purchasing in an entity before they actually go for financing in order to have that asset protection in place. And I don't think I've ever heard of this before and I don't believe it to be true because it's my understanding that you can close on a property and transfer title into an entity at any given time and you're protected from that point forward regardless of whether you were on record of having qualified for the financing prior to that. So can you break this question down and just tell me what the truth is on this? It's a single family home. Single-family home. All right. So if it's a single-family
0: home and they're told they need to have an LLC set up in order to obtain financing, then that tells me they're not dealing with a Freddie Fannie product. They're dealing with most likely a community lender that's going to treat this as a portfolio loan. The community lender standards are such that they want that property in an entity to ensure that there aren't any potential adverse claims that could be filed against the property vis-a-vis the owner. And it's not a bad way of doing it. They're trying to ensure that they have first position right of title against that property. So when when you're dealing with institutional lenders, for example, and you're going to pick up maybe 15 properties, the institutional lender that's going to loan against those will do the same thing. Their requirement will be that they will only do the deal if those assets are inside of an LLC. They will not deal with an individual. They only want to deal with the entity itself because It's one less potential claimant. That is, I can sue you and then I have access to your property. So they're trying to minimize that to the greatest extent as possible. So there could be some validity to that with a portfolio lender. That's what I'm assuming that he's dealing with.
1: So let's do a what if. What if it's just a standard three-bedroom home, a rental in another market, an out-of-state purchase. It is a conventional loan, okay, just a Fannie or Freddie product, and it's plain vanilla. There's nothing special about this. It's not a portfolio lender.
0: Not happening. Can't do it. Freddie Fannie guidelines won't allow them to take that type of deal on inside of the business entity. It would have to be a commercial loan. And under their guidelines, anything four units or under is classified as residential, which would require that the individual himself be the owner of that property. So you couldn't even refinance that property as a commercial property inside of the LLC because it doesn't meet the definition of commercial. It's residential.
1: So the, the real question is, does the asset protection go away if they purchase the property and then transfer title to the entity? And now they're the owner of that property through the entity and they still have that conventional financing. They still have asset protection.
0: No, they still have asset protection because it's who's on title to the property. So if somebody gets hurt while they're out at the property, you sue the owner of the real estate, not the previous owner. So you're just in the chain of title. Somebody owned that property before you. We're not just going to sue people on the chain of title to find the deepest pockets unless you live in California, where they have no rules there on who you can sue. So that was a joke. Yep. <laughs> thing is, is that by putting it into
1: there, you know, because all my great stories, I'd do come from California. <laughs> it was a time-delayed joke. I was actually processing the thing you said before. it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just so many whack job cases that are decisions out of there. But anyways,
0: you do have protection and that's why you do it. And you know, one thing that comes up on that, and you're probably going to ask me this, so I'll beat you to it, is that due on sale clause. People say, well, if it's encumbered and you put it into an LLC, the bank can call my mortgage. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's a what if they possibly could. What is the reality? In 20 years, I can think of maybe four instances where a note has been called when somebody transferred their property into an LLC. And it had nothing to do with the fact they transferred in the LLC. It's Because they quit paying their mortgage, right? They didn't insure their property. That's why the note got called. Not because it was in a limited liability company. Lenders are in the business of loaning money, not owning real estate. And as long as you're staying current on your mortgage, you're keeping your property insured, it's never been an issue.
1: Yeah. And I've never heard of one case in the last 16 and a half years. I mean, it just, I'm sure it happens, but it's very rare. So... To me, it's a scare tactic that some people use in order to sell more of whatever it may be. Land trusts. Everybody wants to sell land trusts. And so they
0: use it for that purpose. They tell you the land trust avoids the due on sale clause. It technically doesn't avoid the due on sale clause for non-owner occupied property. It maybe diminishes the likelihood that somebody will call the note due because thinking it's in a, a living trust, they don't realize it's a land trust, but it doesn't eliminate the due on sale clause. But
1: people use it any way they'd like. Nice. Clint, any last thing you want to say about asset protection before we wrap it up?
0: Well, we talked about quite a few different things here. And as you can probably gather, you know, I didn't tell anyone, this is what you have to do for this type of investing. And the reason why I shy away from that is because unless we know your entire structure and what you're trying to accomplish, it's very difficult to make those types of recommendations. So we talk in the general, if you want specific and you want someone to look at your individual situation. We are offering a free strategy session to your podcast listeners. And in order to obtain that free strategy session, I have a link. It'll be in the show notes. But if you go to aba, that's aba.link forward slash Marco SS, go there. You can sign up for a free strategy session typically it's $750. We will waive that for your podcast listeners. They can get that free strategy session and we'll sit down with
1: you with one-on-one and we'll go through your individual investing and design out a plan for you. Awesome. Wasn't expecting that, Clint, but thank you. I appreciate it. You bet. That's great. Well, thank you for spending the time with me here today. This is always an interesting conversation. Some people don't really want to hear about it or talk about it because it's just too complicated for them. It's too confusing, but at the same time, in the back of their mind, they know, yeah, I can't avoid this and stick my head in the sand all the time. I have to deal with it and put it in place. So you're better off putting it in place today before the day comes when you say, ah, crap, it's too late. Great. Marco, thank you. It's great seeing you. Thank you, Clint. Appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's show about asset protection and why it's important for real estate investors. If you really want to build a solid foundation and build your real estate business, you have to have asset protection, proper asset protection in place. It's really not an option. So in wrapping up here, let's just make sure that you click that subscribe button so you are always notified of each and every new episode every week. If you have questions about real estate investing, by all means, let us know. If you're working with an investment counselor here, then ask them, call them, email them, let them know what your questions are because we're here to help you. And speaking of real estate investing questions, if you have an investment counselor, work with them. If you don't, contact us for a free strategy session. We will connect you with one of our available senior investment counselors to help you take that next step towards your real estate investing journey. Help us spread the word. Visit us on iTunes and please leave us a rating and review. I love them. They're always great and I appreciate that, but I do read all of them download our free report. It is there to help you. It's a primer on real estate investing. It is called The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing, and it is available both of our websites, noradarealestate.com and passiverealestateinvesting.com. Thank you for listening. We will see you on our next episode.
2: Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide.